How you doing, George? I'm doing very well, Dan. Thank you. Good. Okay. Well, um, I thought we would jump straight in and uh, and just ask sort of about uh, what your profession is and uh, what life has been like for you over the last last few weeks that we've been in this situation. Um, so I'm a, a doctor, um, a junior doctor at the moment. Um, I'm training to be a GP. Um, and I'm a couple of years into that out of three. So I'm sort of a year and a half away from being a GP. Um, so my life's been pretty centred around this, the coronavirus the last uh, few weeks. Um, at the moment, I'm working in the hospital. Uh, I was working in the medical admissions unit, um, which is sort of where all the patients who are going to come in under just a general medical uh, problem um, from A&E or from the community coming through the medical admissions unit. So had you been um, working in that unit um, before this happened or were you put there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was working there for a couple of months um, and out of, I was supposed to be there for six months, but um, we've moved now to a super rotor where people from all sorts of different areas in the hospital are all on the same rotor and we're split into teams and we just rotate around different departments um which is yeah quite a big change we've never done anything like that before is that is that happening in uh all hospitals or is that just yours i think generally it is happening across the board yeah um everyone's moving to sort of an emergency type uh rotor um we've actually in the, i because i work in the southwest and we've got quite a low um relatively low level of coronavirus compared to other areas of the country okay and um, so there hasn't been the same sort of work pressures that some people have had in sort of london and things like that okay um, it's been fairly okay um and in the last couple of weeks um my partner uh, had the coronavirus um and you're living together yeah, so she was off work for, for a week, and I've I'm I'm have to be off work for two weeks. Um, so I'm in I'm in day eleven or fourteen, being in the house, not allowed out. Right. So I'm going a bit stir crazy in some ways, but yeah, um, it's been okay. And how are you feeling in terms of uh, well, just within yourself, like what symptoms? Uh, well, actually, let's start with, so what was your sort of journey with it, like uh, having symptoms? What what did you experience yourself? So um, on this mega race, me and, me and my partner were both um, off for over the weekend. So we finished work on Friday and then she and then we were in the house Saturday. Um, and then on Sunday, um, she started feeling uh, just fairly hungover. Um, we had had a, a couple of glasses of wine the night before, but probably out of kilter with that um, throughout the day. And she was sort of playing off like it's nothing. And I thought maybe it's the start of the, the virus. Uh, and then overnight, she had a really high temperature. Um, so about three in the morning, I, I woke up because she was so hot, basically, and uh, moved to the spare room. And then the next day, she developed a cough. Um, we actually tried to do a sort of a self-quarantine, like a quarantine in the flat type situation. So for sort of three or four days, um, she stayed in the bedroom. We have an ensuite, and then I just brought her all of her meals, like a butler. <laughs> um, and But then the following day, I started to feel unwell. But I didn't have a fever or cough. I just had a real sense of um, sort of extreme uh, lethargy and um aching muscles and a headache and uh, i felt a bit shivery but not it, it was kind of coming and going it's very vague and um, so she went to the hospital uh, she drove to the hospital on the second day i think and got a swab which was positive um and i had a swab but probably a bit too early um it normally takes a sort of day three is a good day to get a swab and I had it sort of more on I only had the symptoms for about 24 hours so uh, my swab was negative but so does that, make, be... does that make a difference then in terms of the yeah, days it can be. yeah yeah well there's an ideal it, it's, there's an ideal kind of time frame to get the swab which is sort of um three days 
after you develop the symptoms. Um, you can have it two days after the symptoms, but um, yeah, the swab, my swab is negative, but we've we've seen a few kind of negative swabs, but with people who've got quite classic symptoms. So um, the test isn't perfect, basically. What? How accurate is the test? Um, I think it depends a lot on the, it's not necessarily the accuracy of the test. I think it depends a lot on, on how they're doing the test. Um, we've certainly seen some patients who've had classic sort of um, symptoms and on the chest x-ray um, looked very convincing that it was coronavirus, but the test was negative. Right. Um, so it's, it's a bit difficult to know. I, I, I don't really know the exact figures of, you know, this, of the, uh, how good the test is. Yeah. Okay. And did a lot of doctors, um, did they, did they struggle to, like, what was the process? Because obviously it happened so quickly. There's a lot of doctors and nurses, like, having to learn how to do, I guess, these tests and all this thing that, that that's very coronavirus specific. Um, is, is there, like, training for that when you train to be a doctor? Is there, like, um pandemic like training in terms of like the, the very basics or did did people have to learn quite quickly how to to deal with this well um so i think all kind of uh, doctors have an awareness of, of pandemics and epidemiology and things like that from medical school but we don't do any sort of practical training about it or anything like that um, right they have uh, a command uh, system in place um which goes up all the way up from like the level of management in the hospital up to the, the you know the top commander in the department of health uh, for dealing with emergencies and that sort of structure can just comes into play whenever there's some sort of um, emergency whether that's a terrorist attack or a fire or you know a pandemic yeah where we just use the same system as that um in terms of doing the the actual practicality of, of treating these sort of patients um the swab is a nasopharyngeal swab so that means a swab from the back of the nose um and that's kind of a quite a standard sort of test that we do for other things so, so that, there's not that means yeah, there's like not really... deep deep inside your nose and you have to sort of go in from the nostril and just sort of go quite quite deep in, inside the nostril yeah I, I mean i had it done it was it was, it was um fairly uncomfortable for the you know couple of seconds that it took to do yeah um but it you know it's it's it's, it's bearable for sure yeah um so that sort of we didn't i don't think we needed any sort of extra training for that um in terms of treating the patients it's we don't really have a specific treatment at the moment mm. so um we're generally we're just doing what we always do really is treating oxygen levels and um you know fluid levels and things like that which we've which we're you know we've been doing for since we started so mm. so um there's not been much yeah much change in that respect right okay so is it sort of dealing with uh a lot of the work is just dealing with the symptoms i guess and trying to keep the the effects of the virus down as opposed to trying to treat the virus itself yeah that's exactly right yeah so right. um some patients will come in and just need some oxygen for a few days. Um, other people need to have uh, sort of help breathing with a non-invasive ventilation. Um, so it's sort of like a mask or a hood um, that pushes air into your lungs, um, which is similar to sort of if you put your head out the window when you're driving in a car um, <laughs> and, that sort of, and open your mouth, that pressure of air going into your, your chest is kind of this, it's a similar idea. Yeah. Um, are you recommending that <laughs> yeah if you're very unwell go down the motorway <laughs> you don't want to make like a trump style recommendation <laughs> no, not. um and then other patients need to be intubated so it's the main our main tasks really are sorting out which patients are suitable um for next level like at the highest level of care and um, when they come into the hospital um and then treating the symptoms, keeping people as comfortable as we can, and then recognising when somebody's deteriorating and needs to be moved to a higher level of care, essentially. Right. The main time. So you were saying how like everyone 
has to do everything in a, in a sense, like be a jack of all trades and sort of go between departments. Is that sort of what you were saying? Yeah. So um, we've been mixed in. We've our teams have been, um, like the medical team has been bolstered with um, doctors from other areas. So my medical team has got an ophthalmology trainee, which is like somebody, a doctor who does eyes. Right. Um, and we've got a surgeon. Um, and they've just sort of been doing, like, because when you, when you start as a doctor, your main tasks are administrative, really. Oh, okay. Um, writing in the notes and ordering tests and chasing them up and asking for, you know, for help. So do you, do you um, sort of follow another doctor around and, and you're doing yeah, a sort of administration for them type thing at the start? Uh, in a sense, you do the ward round in the morning. Right. So the senior doctor sees all the patients and makes the plans. And then... Um, your job is to carry out the plan essentially and if there's any you know any tests that come back as positive or needing action then to to contact them and ask what to do okay so uh, it's it, if you've got that sort of working knowledge of medicine you know then you can always revert back to doing that sort of level of care right right so they're still useful even though they haven't worked on a medical board for you know maybe some number of years okay and um so um you're still a junior doctor so what does that mean in terms of um is, is that the same for your role then and it's quite administrative compared to when you're fully qualified or what's the sort of difference between a junior doctor and once you've gone well, past that that stage yeah so a junior doctor is a bit of a difficult term to understand essentially anybody who's not a consultant or a GP is seen as a junior doctor. Right. Um, so there's various grades. So from your first year, you're a junior doctor, but then up to the year before you become a consultant, you're a junior doctor. Um, so it's a bit, it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really account for the sort of level of responsibility you have using that one term. Right. So it sort of down, almost downplays the amount of responsibility you have by saying junior doctor. Well, for some people, yeah, but for other people, yeah, for other, for like the the first year doctors, they right their responsibility is, is less. Right, sure. Um, but I, I think I've so I'm sort of at a level of I make some decisions, but other things I have to refer up the chain. Mm -hmm. Um, just depends on the on the situation really. Um, so, so yeah. So do you, um, once you've completed your the junior doctor phase, uh, which is two years, isn't it? So uh, you do foundation training, which is two years. So your first year is, is, pre, is provisionally licensed. So you're, you, you don't have a full license to practice. There's a couple of, thing, a couple of uh, things that you're sort of not allowed to do. Right. Um, and then after, when you become in your second year of being a doctor, that's your full, you get your full license. Um, okay and then from there you enter your specialty training or you can some people take years out but um if you wanted to be say a surgeon then you start your core surgical training um at that point and in, in starting with your third year uh, or core medical training or if you want to be a gp like me then you start your gp training okay so have you already started your gp training or you will be doing that later on no yeah so your gp training is three years after your after the first two years so five years out of university is the minimum amount of time okay so, so the first uh you know the first sort of 18 months you work in the hospital and then you do 18 months in a gp practice okay general formula and uh is gp the only sort of thing you can go into which is more general do you have to either specialize or become a gp um, yeah, one of the reasons I want to be a GP really is because I want to be a generalist. Okay. And it's really the only option um, for being a full generalist. You can be a general medical doctor, um, okay. where you so instead of specialising in one you know, organ system, um, you work generally in the medical admissions unit, or um, we have some sort of some outpatient clinics where a general like physician will see the patients um and they're, they're quite generalists but they don't they wouldn't see any surgery or 
you know, or anything to do with, you know, limbs or anything like that. So they wouldn't see pregnant people, uh, kids usually. So it'd still only be generalized, but in the field of medicine. Right. Okay. And um, so back to the coronavirus. So um, what has there been in terms of like um, the departments or specialization areas um, where where has there been a, a, a decrease in demand or like um, that hasn't risen and where has been uh, a big increase in demand? Um, I imagine sort of respiratory doctors are you know sort of very important right now and um well obviously all medical professions are important right now but um is there sort of uh you know you mentioned eyes um uh, eye doctors and things like that is there is there a shift between sort of sort of how we're seeing with um the economy like there's a, a shift between a lot more demand um in some areas like supermarkets and uh, del uh online deliveries and things like that and then there's a move away from um a lot of other industries is that sort of happening in a hospital as well yeah so um they've cancelled all um elective uh stuff so the hospital works in in terms of in two groups of patients there's the elective patients which is elective is another word that which means sort of planned um so uh if you're going to have a hip operation um then you would be an elective like if you're gonna have a hip replacement because your hips really sore then you'd have an elective um, operation booked and you'd come in on a planned day and have that operation. Whereas if you fell over and broke your hip, then you'd be an emergency candidate because your hips now like you're in desperate need of being fixed. Right. Right. So, yeah. So in preparation for um, this wave of patients that we thought we were going to get, uh, they canceled all of the elective operations Um especially with bigger operations. Uh, patients will generally go to intensive care after their operation um, just for a couple of days, usually just to make sure that they're recovering well, you know, well enough to go to the ward mm. or they might need a little bit of, um, you know, blood pressure support, something like that. Um, one, so to free up intensive care beds and essentially ventilators, they cancelled all of the elective operations. So the surgeons are just operating on an emergency list right. so everything they can in as an emergency they'll still do because there's certain things that you can't not do like appendix appendix um appendixes hip fractures things like that okay um, and then the ophthalmologists and the eye doctors and the ear nose and throat doctors people like that uh running a very much a reduced service again only for emergencies and and trying to call the patients beforehand to um sort of see if they can sort it out on the phone rather than them coming in so um, with these elective surgeries so these are the ones that there's been an ongoing problem as opposed to a opposed to a sudden emergency problem um yeah are there any areas that um are still going ahead i imagine like like cancers and things like that is that that's still going ahead isn't it or yes and no Right. Okay. Um, there's there's been a reduction, but I think that there's I think that there's a bit of a a risk benefit sort of analysis. So if you've got somebody who's going to have an operation that improves their five year survival by you know three or four percent, mm. then the risk of them coming in getting the coronavirus possibly and you know is probably not worth the risk of the surgery. Um, but in th in terms of things like bowel cancers. Um, my understanding is that they were still going ahead because right. if they didn't, then they'd likely there's a risk that they would obstruct the bowel, and then they'd have to come in as an emergency and have the procedure anyway. Right, right. Um, so, well, they might do. So they've been going ahead with those sort of things. Um, chemotherapy is another interesting area that's sort of a bit of a mismatch. They've definitely reduced the you know the they reduced the amount of chemotherapy that they're giving out. They rationalised it again from risk benefit. Mm -hmm. I think most patients wanted to carry on with it, um, anecdotally. Mm -hmm. Sure, um, but um, yeah, it's a really difficult question. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, and yeah, it's not it's not a case of feeling that 
you know anyone listening it's not um george isn't on to sort of give exact figures and to uh to to say exactly uh how things are he's not someone who's going on the bbc and and answering all the all the technical questions it's just sort of his views and um his experiences with it really so um yeah just to clarify that um yeah so what what's been sort of sort of on that note in terms of experiences like is is um your partner is she also working uh in the same field as you um yes generally yeah okay so she's also she's also training to be a gp right okay um, she's working in um a similar area at the moment we're, we're both on this mega rotor okay and you're sort of uh and you're both in the same hospital yeah okay and you're both at the same stage and sort of your um education or your progress in terms of um... yeah yeah we're both um yeah we're both doing the same thing at the same time basically yeah cool cool so it's her competitiveness with it. <laughs> uh, not really. No, we don't. There's no. Um, there's no competitiveness for jobs or anything like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, yeah not much of that. <laughs> um, what have you found? Um, you know, uh, with you two when you talk, or with your colleagues and things like that. How do you? What's the sort of feelings at the moment amongst the? The other NHS staff that you work with, what's uh, the sort of mood that you're getting? Uh, well, with regards to the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Since this sort of happened, and yeah, just um, yeah, in the last few weeks, I guess. Um, well, I think as I said before, the work pressure for us isn't isn't so bad in this okay. area, but whereas it might it's, it is bad elsewhere. Okay. Um. At the world. um I think there's been a lot of anxiety about sort of personal health, um, you know, kind of uh, worrying about bringing this infection home to your family, mm. um, that kind of thing. Um, and also this just sort of a nervousness about, um, I think that one of the biggest problems that we've had is sort of dealing with uncertainty mm. um, in terms of we this, we're expecting this wave of patients um and it just the timeline was impossible to predict. So we just kind of planned for the best, for the worst case scenario. Um, but we were kind of just, uh, you know, waiting for it to happen, which was, um, yeah, it was fairly difficult to deal with that uh, level of uncertainty right. when it was going to, whereas if it was, oh, it's going to be busy in a week, like for sure, and this is, you know, what is expected of you, then you can sort of plan that out in your head. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's more difficult when somebody says, you know, we don't, we're not sure. Do you think, um, in a sense, like the worst has been prepared for, but actually, um, it's it's not been as overwhelming just for your particular hospital than as might have been expected. Um, yes, I mean we have had an influx of coronavirus patients, mm. um, but it's very much within the realms of our capacity, and we've seen a massive drop off of. Um, other patients um i don't know it's nobody really knows why it's probably most likely that people are afraid to come to the hospital mm. um, and we've seen a few cases of people uh putting off um things that they should have come into hospital with uh, like heart attacks and strokes and things like that so we, it's a really important kind of thing to get the message out that we're still open for business mm. and if you do have a serious medical problem then you should still come to the hospital yeah yeah so that that yeah. seems to be something that i'm hearing as well again it's just for me it's just on the news and things like that that a part of this drop is is, is going to be people scared to go to the hospital still um so what are the sort of avenues that people get if they're if they're ill um on different levels i guess at the moment uh how do you mean uh so if you're if you're ill um or uh yeah what what is the sort of difference in what they can do if if someone gets ill um what what avenues can they go down in terms of their gp and the hospital um what what are you so, sort um, of seeing so if you're unwell with coronavirus symptoms 
um, unless it's an emergency and you and you can't, you know, you're really struggling to breathe, then you should call 999. Uh, but if you're just you're stable but unwell, then the advice is to call 111, um, and they will arrange for you to be seen in a coronavirus assessment centre, essentially. Okay. Um, we've opened one part of the hospital up as a respiratory assessment unit, um, and what the idea is is that the coronavirus or suspected coronavirus patients will come in through that one entrance, right? Um, and they're all kind of kept in that area. And then we keep A and E free as a sort of a clean area. Right. Um, but we've also had the A and E is also um, well is still accepting the patients who are critically ill. Mm. Um, so yeah, it depends on, but that will vary quite significantly depending on where what your local kind of trust is set up. So sure, uh, sure. Things to do, yeah, either nine 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 if it's an emergency or one 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 if it's you're worried but it's not a critical thing yeah and i guess like you say the main message is that if, if you're if you're having severe problems uh or any problems but especially severe problems in an emergency you know a and e's aren't shut down you know they're not it's not like you won't be able to get in the hospital um, no absolutely not if, yeah. any, you know, if anything they've got they're um yeah wait they're waiting around for some patients to come in <laughs> <They're> yeah <somewhere. laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but we're still operating. I mean, we're still doing, uh, you know, treating patients for heart attacks, treating patients for strokes, like any serious medical problem. All the treatment's still available. There's no, um, there's no limitations, well, in our area for that sort of thing. So, okay, uh, it's definitely worth coming to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, slightly different note. Uh, it's up to you if you want to sort of go into this area or not. Um, but. Do you have any thoughts on sort of how the government's been dealing with this um, and, and what's been going on uh, since since the outbreak happened and since it's been locked down? Um, what's the government doing about it? Uh, I don't really, you know, I don't really have much to say about that, really. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. I didn't believe that, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. No problem. Um what's um what do you what do you feel like the future you're hoping or you're seeing that the future might be in terms of the nhs and um the medical profession after this um have you had any thoughts about that sort of thing like what the future might hold or what you hope it will hold um and so um, we've seen quite a change in practice for uh, gps over this uh, over this area so we've been trying to move um towards sort of video uh consultations okay for some time um a lot of gp practices um have moved towards a telephone triage where they call the patients that all the patients who are going to come into the surgery that day get a phone call in the morning um and if it's something like i need my prescription renewed then we can do that over the phone um and not waste an appointment time um and then we'll just see the patients who need examining basically or uh, yeah okay so uh, we've moved because of the risk of coronavirus to healthcare professionals. We've moved quite significantly towards doing video um, kind of conferencing um, to see patients, video consultations, um, and it's worked out very well. And I think that that's something that everybody is sort of banking on being a persistent change, right. um, not not going back towards um, doing as many face-to-face consultations. Um, I think that there's, well, there was a private company that was operating um, by doing sort of video um, video consultations for GPs, um, which people would pay a fee and then they could see a GP on a video call. Mm. Uh, but the, I think that the way that they were going about things was criticised by a lot of people. Um, they were sort of just giving out whatever the patient wanted which wasn't necessarily in their best interests. Right, right, sure. Um, okay. And there's a danger, yeah, there's a bit of a danger with that sort of business model of, you know, if somebody pays £50 for a consultation and says, I want some sleeping pills, mm. then there's a pressure for the physician to offer them them. Yeah. Um, whereas if you come to your GP and you've known them for years and, you know, you know, you can have a chat with them and see what the best thing is for them. Mm. And, but with the, 
yeah, sorry. So no, no, carry on, mate. I was just saying. So there's a new. They've they started using this new app, which apparently is very good, um, and it links with the patients' records. And the GPs are seeing their own patients through this video app, and it's working out very well. Is what I've been told. That's brilliant. Um, so, yeah. So hopefully that's a positive change. Yeah, and that seems to have. I mean, obviously I haven't seen on the ground how quickly it's happened, but it seems to have happened very quickly. Like that they've actually, and the fact that you're saying it's working quite well. Um, yeah. what you've been been told anyway it's it's that's quite amazing that, that it's happened so quickly and um you know this this yeah. vital, vital thing is another uh, another really big um kind of change is there's a lot of patients in the hospital who um are there for social reasons so they've completed their treatment but they aren't well enough to go back and live in their home right um, so they need a placement in like a care home or a you know, an interim facility. So this sort of um, typically be um, like older patients and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's almost right. all older patients. Yeah, and they need they need a placement, but that takes a few days to sort out. They have to have these assessments to see what place is most suitable for them, and then you have to contact their family and they work out how they're going to how they're going to pay for it. Uh, it all takes a few days, um, but while that is happening, the patient's in hospital. Um, and they don't need. We don't need them to be there. If that mm. makes sense. Um, and they, we've lost a lot of community beds in the last sort of um, couple of like sort of uh, decade, right? Which has made that problem worse. But what's happened in this sort of uh, crisis period is that these patients have gone to a wall and have been going to sort of like a care home and having the assessments there. Um, so they're out of the hospital. As soon as they're well, um, which has been excellent. Wow! And if we could keep that going, that would be a huge difference. Yeah, that's amazing. I had no idea that was happening. But the um, the the, th- the the difference is that the care home is taking a bit more risk on because they're taking these patients without possibly without the you know the correct equipment. Sure. Um, so they're taking on a bit of risk, which they're happy to do at the moment. But whether they'll carry on after this is over it's difficult to know sure sure but i guess it's a good first step and it's you know hopefully if there's motivation and the will to carry on uh, this sort of streamlining of patients to make sure they stay in a stable condition and they're they're cared for whether they're in the hospital or they're going into a care home and then back to their own home um just working towards that goal it can sort of be made more effective and more safe if if the will's there to to keep it going on i guess yeah i mean we, well i have heard people say that we've you know made steps in the last few weeks that have been years in the making right just out of necessity so mm. um, i think that there has been some positive changes in the healthcare structures but whether that will persist is is you know sort of up in the air we don't know sure sure and and like um from my point of view, um, I'm, I'm not imposing my point of view on yours or anything, but um, sure, yeah. the the more um, streamlined, the more effective um, the NHS is with the resources, um, the better it is for everyone. Um, I think there's this this idea of like, uh, you know, we have to we have to uh, let the patient have whatever they want and uh, as much money is pumped in as possible but actually these simple ideas like um you know video calls when it's not needed to see them or i mean for me for example um so i had um a, an adrenal tumor a few years ago i'm not going to say the the actual term of it because it's too complicated to uh, to say and uh, but yeah yeah you know pheochromocytoma um but yeah so i had that um removed a few years ago and um uh a few weeks ago i had uh, an appointment for genetic testing so yeah so it's just basically um uh, a consultation it was just a consultation but the the appointment was at hammersmith um and even before this sort of coronavirus got bad it was still sort of we had like one or two people maybe in the country who had it at this point but it wasn't how you know anywhere no one really seemed to know as bad as it was going to be now but anyway so i i asked them just because i had to go all the way to hammersmith and i live outside of london i was wondering if i could just get a phone appointment 
and they're, they're like yeah that's fine it's just a it's just a consultation and i feel like like what you were saying um off the back of that having more uh consultations and thing that can be just as easily done over the phone then that that's just great for everyone um it saves on travel costs it saves having that contact you know um with a with a doctor when it's not necessary um and that that seems like you know uh, possibly a good thing if we can do that more mm. um yeah i think it, i think it really would be great mm. um yeah i think as well a lot of people a lot of the resistance of this has been that you know older people don't know how to use technology sort of idea but mm. Actually, they're fairly good. Mm. Um, most of them have, you know, somebody who can help them if they they struggle. Mm. Uh, and seeing patients in a care home, there's always some, you know, a carer there who can sort out a video link. Um, so I, I think those sort of, I think the barriers are, are less than we kind of think that they are. Yeah, and and it's a case of even if there are older people who do struggle with that, then then they can still go to their GP. You know. It doesn't have to be yeah, a blanket exactly. thing for everyone. It's the minority, I think, now uh, in this country mm. that people don't know how to use te uh, technology and sort of video calls. I know, for example, my grandmother, one of my grandmothers, she she's so computer illiterate. Um, it's just crazy. But she, she knows how to use a phone, so she could still have phone consultations if she didn't need to see someone in person. Um and yeah, we can always help her out with video calls and things like that once once we can see her again. So yeah, like you say, there's there are there are ways to do it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think it'll be good. Cool. Well, yeah, that's that's really good good news. I didn't know about you know even more so actually better news. What you were saying about you know these people going straight out of hospital, freeing up that bed, but then going into you know a, a place of care is is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, another thing we could talk about is um, uh, what's, have you have you heard much about um, do not resuscitate orders? Um, is it is it to do with if they've said they don't want to be resuscitated? Like if someone has like a piece of paper in their wallet that says do not resuscitate or something like that? Or yeah, so um, so it's uh, generally a form, right? Um, that a doctor will kind of fill out um on behalf of the patient right um and there's no kind of box for the patient to sign or anything like that which is kind of a quite a common misconception um and it's something that is really misunderstood by the public right okay um, and it's sort of come to light in the on the eve of this crisis okay um so essentially for what we're talking about is cpr mm -hmm. um like what you'd learn in a first aid course if somebody's not breathing or doesn't have a heart rate mm -hmm. um doing chest compressions and um kind of rescue breaths but from like a bystander mm -hmm. or um in the hospital we have other things that we we do such as sort of um giving electric shocks with a defibrillator um using a like more invasive sort of ventilation and putting like a intubating a patient mm -hmm. um and giving them drugs like adrenaline um, which some evidence that that might help restart the heart. Okay. So the idea of it is basically if somebody's collapsed and their heart has stopped, um, it's you're pressing on their chest to to squeeze their heart basically, mm -hmm. and to keep the blood flowing to the brain and to keep the brain alive um, until you can identify what the cause of their cardiac arrest or the heart stopping is. So right. some of the causes might be a blood clot in the lungs. Um, it might be a, a heart attack. Um, sometimes you can get air that's trapped between the lung and the chest wall that needs to be deflated. But what we're looking for essentially is a reversible cause, hmm. something that we can treat whilst we're doing CPR. Right. Um, it's not a very good treatment. Um, and the success rate varies quite significantly from age. Um, so for a, you know, a top level kind of like, um, CPR in a young person, the, the rate of survival is still sort of 30, 40%. Um, for somebody in their, at an advanced age, uh, say like 80 or sort of in their seventies with lots of different health problems, 
Um, if they were to come in with a pneumonia or something like that, and they were to get worse and worse to the point where their heart were to stop or they were to stop breathing, mm. um, then doing chest compressions and you know giving them electric shocks is futile essentially. Right. It doesn't. It's not going to work. Um, and of those that do survive, the which is you know a minimal number, mm. uh, the vast majority end up in a sort of vegetative state for a few months, right, um, and pass away anyway. So, um, so what you're saying is that CPR, even when done in the hospital, um, for some patients, um, it can be more harm, and sometimes, or at very least, it it doesn't do do much. It can be that anyway. Obviously, CPR is very important, but for yeah, for for um yeah, for people who are you know otherwise young and fit and and healthy, or you know even sort of in the middle age category, it's all it's worth doing. But mm. for some patients, you can identify that CPR isn't in their best interests. Right. Sure. And it's the like CPR is a medical um, treatment in the same way that sort of surgery or chemotherapy is a medical treatment and doctors can refuse to give out medical treatments that aren't in a patient's best interest right okay so it's a medical decision whether or not we think that a patient should be resuscitated mm. um but we all we have quite a um sort of uh we think it's very important to sort of discuss it with the patient and not just make the decision on their you know on their behalf which is without telling them Mm. um so but we when we're talking about that as a as a concept we're talking about if their heart was to stop right. whereas a lot of people kind of feel like that if they've got a do not resuscitate order that means that they're not for any treatment which isn't the case at all right it's just that one specific treatment that's not so for example <laughs> like if someone was uh, diabetic and they needed an insulin injection and they came to the hospital and they're unconscious it, you're not talking about you wouldn't uh, a, a doctor in this scenario wouldn't be giving uh, an insulin injection it's more focused on uh, restarting the heart yeah exactly yeah right. if, they, if they were breathing and they had a heart rate then every other treatment you know it would be offered to them yeah and um, it's it's just this one thing and a lot of people very you know can get themselves in a bit of a you know a get very worried about this thinking that they're you know they want everything done for their relative mm, like yeah. i don't want to let my nan die mm. but the problem is really is that if their nan's heart was to stop in this sort of situation then they're going to they're going to die anyway right right um but there's a kind of a more of a concept of having a, a good death you mm. know do you want to be uh, surrounded by your friends and family as you slip away or do you want sort of 10 people to come in the room and start doing electric shocks right and, right you know, invasive procedures which aren't necessary are there some occasions where uh cpr doesn't happen and the patient can get better or is it sort of like when it gets to the stage where cpr was needed to restart the heart that um that they're without uh intervention that they're, they're not gonna survive anyway um yeah so it is yeah they, they wouldn't survive it, but mm. they would be extremely unlikely for someone's heart to stop and then to restart on its own and right. then to make a full recovery it's not anything that i've never heard of a case like that but okay cool so let's let's break this down then so so what you're talking about is uh let's say someone who is 90 um mm -hmm. they come in um their heart stops for whatever reason um and the normal sort of public idea is is that CPR needs to happen to save their life. But what you're saying is, in the vast majority of cases, CPR would have no impact um, to resuscitate this person and to, um, yeah, to, to make them better. Um, and it could actually severely damage them. So if they do come around from it, then they could be in sort of vegetative state and I guess not that their, their brain would just not be working properly yeah they'd have a brain injury from lack of oxygen over a prolonged period of time right 
Um, so yeah, again, this is a you know this isn't a decision for people to make. You know, if somebody sees someone collapse on the street, then to do their normal first aid mm, mm. is you know that's important. But it's more of a it's more of a discussion that um, doctors should be having with more patients, basically, to right. explain you know when they are at a certain age what they'd like to happen to them um if they're you know if this was if this, they're in this situation mm. and i guess and, part of the problem and sort of thing maybe you might be alluding to correct me if i'm wrong is that a lot of stigma can come um for doctors because doctors have to make life and death decisions every day for their patients and they're trying to do their best for the patients like um uh this these things can come along where the um uh family members of the patient and things like that they they blame the doctor and they think the doctor did it all wrong and that they weren't trying to save their life and what you're trying to say is basically uh more understanding of why doctors make these sort of choices um hopefully will reduce some of the stigma and some of the the judgment yeah we're trying to we're trying to get yeah we're trying to get people to understand what why this is you know why these decisions are being made and to understand what the implications of them are that it's mm. not that we won't get offer any treatment it's just this one specific treatment for a certain group of frail and often elderly patients is not in their best interests mm. and try and have that discussion about it in advance rather than when it comes to the you know at two in the morning where somebody's deteriorating and we need to call their family and talk about it on the phone it's completely inappropriate we should have talked to them about it when they first come into hospital or, you know, the GP in the community or whenever there's a good opportunity to. So in your opinion, again, it's just your opinion, right? I know you're not laying down any policies or anything like that. Um, sure. where, what do you think would be a good way to approach this? What do you think would be a good way to, for the public um, to understand this more uh, in terms of like in the moment and 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 just in general um well i think um i think that uh, i think we're kind of overdue a public discussion about it mm -hmm. um whether that's through a you know a public information campaign mm -hmm. um, i think that would be very useful mm. um but i think on an individual level i think that doctors have to take some responsibility to talk to patients about this right the, the real one of the real issues is as well in, is in general practice where you're looking after a patient over you know quite a number of years um is that this sort of discussion in the rock you know in, in a certain patient can sometimes ruin that patient doctor relationship if you push them too hard mm. if they if they're adamant that they want to be resuscitated and then there's a bit of a you know a a conflict there between the doctor and the patient and it's difficult to know whether saying you know doing that against their putting that order in against their wishes mm. is um more damaging than damaging that doctor patient relationship and them not wanting to come to you for advice in the future if that makes sense so what's what's the law around that is it that the patient has the final say no so the, the patient does um so the the law is that the doctor makes the makes the treatment decision oh, okay so there's no um expectation from the family or the patient that they have to sign up to anything or you know make any decision um but if 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 the patient has has said beforehand that in all scenarios i want to be resuscitated is that then the patients can't the patients can't um demand treatment but they can refuse it right so the, so the doctor decides what is on the menu and the patients can choose from those items essentially yeah okay. nice nice metaphor to explain it okay so all right so that's that's cleared up something because i was thinking of sort of about um the the thing about blood transfusion there's some patients that refuse blood transfusions don't aren't there yeah so that yeah. that's allowed because they're refusing treatment yes absolutely and right. the, the, if they really want the so what, where the difficulty comes is if somebody uh, refuses, say, I don't want a blood transfusion, and then they come in unconscious and you can't ask them whether or not you treat them mm. in their best mm. interest. Yeah. Because if they die without the treatment, 
So the what patients who are who kind of refuse blood transfusions are encouraged to do is fill out an advanced directive, mm-hmm. which is a legal document that says in all scenarios I want to refuse. I, I refuse to have any other. You know. Yeah. I, refuse to have I remember. I remember filling out one of them. Oh right. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, carry on. I was just uh, interjecting. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, um, <laughs> sorry, carry on. Were you still? Were you still going? No, I, I think I thought I finished what I was going to say. Yeah, oh, so okay. yeah, advanced directives. Yeah, and some and advanced directives can also cover things like um, patients who say, "Oh, I don't want to come back to hospital. Mm. You know, I just want to be have whatever treatment is available in my home. I don't want to come into hospital have needles." jammed into me and stuff like that mm, okay and we're trying to think more and more about this sort of thing but you know if we have an out a very very extremely frail elderly patient with severe dementia are, are we really doing the right thing for them to bring them into hospital you know kind of put a needle in their arm and mm. give them antibiotics while they're in extreme distress and mm. things like that it's um it's a really interesting point actually even now but the the reason it's sort of quite relevant now is because a lot of families are now not able to be by their their loved one's bedside um yeah for for good good reason in the sense of you know trying to stop the the spread of infection um but what the way it ties into what you're saying is that you know having like you say a good death like being by instead of like you say a load of uh health professionals trying to revive it in, in quite a, like a very intrusive way um and you know with needles in the arms and and you know pushing down their chest and things like that what is it not uh something that we should be uh or yeah that that, that a lot of families would want to be there in a more calm situation just be the ones next to their loved one while they while they slip away a lot more peacefully um and that's that's yeah sorry that's i guess what what doctors who make these sort of decisions that's what they're they're saying is it's it's like we're doing this for that reason it it, there is such a thing as a good death and um uh, some scenarios um a good death happens by not trying to resuscitate exactly yeah yeah i think that's exactly right Mm. and yeah uh, and and I think that yeah they, again the point of trying to talk about these things in advance um, and I think that if anybody has an elderly relative you know and even if they're in a good state of health talking to them about what they'd want to happen you know in the next five years the next ten years right you know, at the end of their life whether they'd like to some people were very keen to die at home so some people yeah so let's get specific then um, who so. You, what sort of bracket do you think people can be starting to have these conversations? Uh, what what people fall into the bracket of might not be resuscitated and they should start to have these conversations about like above what age range roughly or people with certain um, health problems anyway? Is there anything you can say in terms of if people, someone knows someone within this bracket, then they it would be a good idea for them to start to have this conversation about resuscitation? Um, so I think that we've met, we've got a, a concept that sort of combines age and health into mm-hmm. one um, bracket, which is frailty. Okay. Um, so frailty is essentially um, what a person can can do for themselves. Um, so we've got a, a, a scale of, of from one to nine, mm. um, and essentially nine is somebody who's um, on sort of on death's door. And one is somebody who's very fit and very active, sort mm. of like a, yeah, somebody goes running and things like that. Um, and what we're looking for is people who are sort of slowed down. Maybe they go out of the house or just walk up to the end of the road to the shop, um, but can't really get much around much more than that. Those that that sort of um, you know maybe they need help with their shopping or you know so when somebody started to approach that boundary of needing assistance i think is is quite a good time but there's no yeah as i said there's no kind of um there's no formula for knowing Mm. who needs you know needs to make these sort of plans yeah um it's just 
but as a general rule if you feel that someone is in a quote frail situation um yeah. health wise or in terms of age or, or both together then it, it, it's probably a good idea just to have this conversation at some point yeah i think anybody who's sort of elderly um you know just talking to them or has a, a life-limiting condition mm. you know that kind of thing where you just i think yeah it's just important to establish the facts but it, it's a it's a good conversation to have with a with a GP, I think, mm. as well as with the family, um, and and then to get that as a, you know, documented so that when the situation arises, mm. um, there's some yeah, there's some information available to know what what the person would have wanted if they weren't aren't able to make their own decisions at the time. Mm. That's a great idea about GP as well. That's a great suggestion. You know, sort of having the conversation with the person, you know, your family and things like that, but also um going with the person to to a gp and and having this conversation with with their gp would also add that another level of um uh just just input into the conversation um and maybe answer a few questions um yeah well yeah i think that's that's an amazing uh amazing point to bring up is there anything else along those lines that you sort of wanted to talk about with that um not really. No, I think that we've covered most of it, haven't we? Unless you've got any more kind of questions about it. But I think, yeah, I just, I, it's just important to think that the, that you know, as a doctor, you're always trying to do the best for mm. the patient. That we wouldn't be doing anything like this if it was, you know, there's no government mandated sort of policy from above saying you have to do this or anything like that. Which it seems to be, um, social media seems to be awash with these sort of rumours that the nhs is killing off the elderly and stuff like that which is not the case at all yeah Yeah. and what isn't there an oath you take as well when you join the nhs no that's quite a common misconception yeah we don't don't do that (laughs) oh fair enough (laughs) but we have to abide by certain sort of guidelines you know that uh like the gmc produce guidelines for ethical working things like that which we follow but mm, there's, mm. No, there's no hypocritic oh okay fair enough. um yeah exactly yeah i would second that from someone who's not in the nhs and not working in the nhs but you know you guys you always you go through training for such a long time and there there are you know ethical policies in place as there are with any organization um and yeah you're just trying to trust just trying to do your best and i think yeah i'm really glad you you brought this up um the sort of do not resuscitate sort of policy and because yeah i i hadn't thought about it it wasn't something i was thinking to bring up today but i think the point of this podcast well part of the point of this podcast is for um yeah people the guests on it to to be able to say what they want to say and to get a message out there that they want to get and especially something as important as that um it's yeah so so thank you for for bringing that up um i think it's a really really important point yeah well thank you very much (laughs) cool well that actually leads us uh to the end now because we've we've done about an hour um oh excellent okay yeah great thanks Uh, very much no thank you and um yeah, I'll just before we go, um, I'll just say to anyone listening, uh, please feel free to continue this conversation by commenting with any thoughts you have, or please contact me to come on the show yourself. I'd like to get as many different guests as we can. Um, and in terms of what we've talked about today, just to summarise and for you to all think about, um, we've talked about um, the response from hospitals in terms of the coronavirus. We've talked about um, the the stages of of being a junior doctor and um sort of what that that involves um and we talked about um well the, the second half of the conversation was brought up by Woodger George which <laughs> I call him Woodger uh um in personal life but yeah uh, brought up by George we talked about um the whole concept of do not resuscitate um which was brilliant as well so yeah uh, listeners please feel free to uh, to comment and have a think about that but uh Most of all, just thank you very much, George. Thanks very much, Dan. All right, see you later. See you later. Bye-bye. There's something else I'd like to say to any listeners, all three of you. This podcast is an ongoing process. It's an ongoing experiment. 
and trying things out and seeing what works and what doesn't. And so any feedback on this or other episodes will be really appreciated. I don't want this podcast to just be for my own enjoyment. The goal is for it to benefit people in some way. And constructive feedback is the best way to know if this goal is being achieved. If I don't know something's rubbish, then I'll just keep producing rubbish. If I don't know something's good, then I'll just stop producing anything good. And also, if you think of anyone that you know that would be a good guest for me to chat to, then please let me know. I would love the opportunity to speak to a wide range of people about an even wider range of subjects. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope you continue the conversation. Bye for now.